Hello and welcome to this second Bible study on the subject of the character of God. We're using the English alphabet as a framework by which to go through the Bible and see what the Bible tells us about the nature of the God we worship. We've seen that God is almighty, God is beautiful, God is creative, God is determined and God is eternal. But why are we doing this? Just in order to inform our minds? No, we're doing it in a devotional way. We're remembering the old prayer day by day of thee three things we pray. To see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly and to follow thee more nearly day by day. So today we come to the letter F and we came across the fatherhood of God when we considered the Lord's Prayer some weeks ago, our Father who art in the heavens. Good fathers give life to their children and good fathers love their children unconditionally. And so when we say that God is a father, it's not that God is a bit like a decent human father, it's more that human fathers at their very best are just a little bit like God. In the Bible, in the New International Version translation, God is called Father 14 times in the Old Testament and 228 times in the New Testament. But the thing that was unique about Jesus is he called God his own personal Father and he told us to do the same. Now he used the word Abba, which was the Aramaic word for Father. It would be used by a child of four or a teenager of 14 or a grown adult of 44 because Abba was the word for father. What did Jesus teach us about good fathers? Well, he told us that good fathers provide for their children's needs. In Matthew chapter six, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, so let me tell you, don't worry about your life what to eat, what to drink. Don't worry about your body, what to wear. There's more to life than food. There's more to the body than a suit of clothes. Have a good look at the birds in the sky. They don't plant seeds. They don't bring in the harvest. They don't store things in barns. And your Father in heaven feeds them. Think how different you are from them. If God gives this sort of clothing even to the grass in the field, which is here today and on the bonfire tomorrow, isn't he far more likely to clothe you too, you little faith lot? So don't worry away with your what'll we eat and what'll we drink and what'll we wear. Those are all the kinds of things the Gentiles fuss about and your heavenly father knows you need them all. Jesus is teaching us here that God will provide for our needs. Not for our greeds, not for our desires, but God will provide for our needs. I remember once uh, when my son was probably eight or nine, he was obsessed with Star Wars. The Star Wars films were in vogue at the time. And he knew that his grandmother had left him a, a legacy of a few hundred pounds. And he demanded to have hold of that legacy and to spend every last penny of it on Star Wars figures vehicles, spaceships, backgrounds, books, anything to do with Star Wars, he wanted the lot. 
and I said no. I think I was being a good father in saying no, because at the age of 18, he got the money when he needed it. He didn't get what he wanted when he wanted it, but he did get what he needed when he needed it. And so it is with God. He provides all that we need when we need it. As the hymn says, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. But, but God's better than that. Look at Matthew chapter 7 also in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't you see? Supposing your son asks you for bread, which of you is going to give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, which of you is going to give him a serpent? Well then, if you know how to give good things to your children, evil as you are, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? When I said earlier that God gives us what we need when we need it, I did not mean to imply that God is in any way stingy. Jesus is teaching us here that God is generous. He gives good gifts to his children. In Luke's Gospel 12, he said, Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father is delighted to give you the kingdom. God is not stingy in giving you only your needs. God is generous in giving you presents as well. And then Jesus taught the good fathers forgive their children's wrongs. You remember the parable of the landowner who had two sons. One of them was a moral tearaway and the other one was a self-righteous prig. But when the moral tearaway came home and offered to be a servant, a slave in the father's household, the father forgave his disobedience and received him back as a son. So Jesus teaches us that God provides for our needs God gives us presence over and above our needs and God forgives us when we cause him pain. And so if those are characteristics of God as a father, then they're characteristics that we should portray as the followers of Jesus too. G is for grace. And you may remember the story from Dad's Army of Corporal Jones, who had lost £500, and he went to his bank manager, who was also his his um, company captain, desperately not, not knowing what to do. He had this enormous debt of £500. And we said that if Captain Mannering, the bank manager, had written off that debt, that would, would have been an act of mercy. But if Captain Mannering had given him a further £500, then that would have been an act of grace. Because grace means undeserved favour. It means God being nice to the nasty. It means, in Paul's alarming phrase, God justifying the wicked. It's God saying to the ungodly, you're okay, you're in the clear, you're forgiven. But more than that, I treat you as if you were Jesus. I'm justifying you. I'm giving you the gift of righteousness. I'm treating you as if you are as much in the right with God as Jesus is in the right with God. Justification, an act of God's grace. Let me tell you the parable of the mangy mongrel. 
The parable of the mangy mongrel goes rather like this. A young woman was out in the park on a sunny day enjoying her walk and out of nowhere came this ugly, address aggressive dog barking and slavering at the mouth. It leapt up at her and it bit her face and she had to go to hospital for a tetanus injection and to be treated uh, for this nasty bite. Many months later, she decided she wanted to buy a rescue dog and she went down to the RSPCA to find such a dog and there in one of the cages was this mangy bitch which had attacked her some time before. Now most people's reaction would have been no way I'm not going to touch that dog with a barge pole I remember how aggressive that dog can be I know how nasty it was to me there's no way I'm going to rescue that particular dog. But this woman's heart was filled with grace and she bought the very dog which had done her harm. She showed undeserved favour to that nasty dog, took it into her home, looked after it, paid all its vet spills and gave it a good life. That was an act of grace. Grace means your badness is no hindrance and your goodness is no help. For me, it's my most favourite word in the whole of the Bible. It's greater even than the word love, because we know that God loves us, but we can love God in return. But when we say that God shows grace towards us, we can never show grace back to God, because God is deserving of all our love and worship and obedience and following. God just shows us grace because he is a gracious God. And if God is gracious to nasty people, we should be gracious people too. If God has shown grace to us who don't deserve grace, we should show grace to others who don't deserve grace from us. H is for holy. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed, Holy Father, protect my disciples by the power of of your name. In Psalm 111, holy and awesome is God's name. In Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim, who remember are a form of angel, the seraphim cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in the first letter of Peter, quoting Leviticus, he tells the Christians to be holy because I am holy. So what does holy mean? I want to explain this by you causing you to think about the Sabbath. In Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, before there was any sin, before Adam and Eve had disobeyed, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now, there's no question of sin. So the word holy here can't mean sinless. It means it was a different day. It was a day set aside to be spent in a, a special way. Later in Exodus chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, Moses or God isn't saying you can sin six days of the week, but on the seventh, you've got to be a holy person. 
Of course not. So the word holy doesn't really mean sinless, although it does include that. God didn't say to man, Adam, you can sin six days of the week, but not on the seventh. Israel, you can be disobedient on six days of the week, but not on the seventh. He meant something entirely different by holy. Holy means separate, different, distinct, other, unique, special. So the Sabbath was to be a different day, a distinct day, a special day, a day not like all the other days. And God is a different God from all the other gods. He is distinct, he is other, he is unique, he is special, he is separate. There is no God like our God. God is holy. He is above all the others. Aaron had a holy linen coat, which he used to wear when he was offering sacrifices in the tabernacle. It was holy. It doesn't mean it was sinless. It means he was set aside for a special job. Aaron would never have taken that linen coat home to help with the washing up. No, it was holy. It was set apart for sacred use. Jesus said the Father is holy. Holy Father, protect my disciples by the power of your name. The early church called Jesus holy. They prayed, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, in Acts 4. And the Holy Spirit is holy because in Romans chapter 1, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of holiness. So the contrast between holy and unholy is not between sinless and sinful. It's the contrast between sacred and ordinary. So Aaron again, the high priest, uh, he had sacred tongs to use when offering sacrifices on the altar, but he would never have taken them home to cook dinner with because they were sacred tongs. They were set aside for a special use. God is sacred. God is different. God is set apart. God is distinct. God is holy. And therefore we should be too. In 1 Peter chapter 1, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written in Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. In other words, Christians should be different. God has set us apart. God has separated us from the world to be special. We've been set apart by God for his glorious kingdom and therefore we should be different. We should be distinct. We should be holy. Our lives, our thoughts, our emotions, our motives, our attitudes, our use of money, our sexual behaviour, our responses to being wronged, our feelings towards people of a different race or colour or social class, Everything about us should be different. We should be distinct. We've been set apart by God as holy for his kingdom. And we as Christian people should be entirely different from the kinds of people that we live among. We should stand out, not like sore thumbs, but we should stand out like beautiful thumbs. Because God is holy, different, distinct, special. We should be too. Hebrews 12. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I 
is for imminent. And again, we came across this word when we considered the Lord's Prayer. Imminent means close. It means nearby. It means always there with you. And Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, who art in the heavens. Now, the who art in the heavens bit is about the transcendence of God, his power, his might, his holiness indeed, his authority. But our Father speaks to us of the imminence of God, how much he loves us, how close he is to us, how he cares for us, how he's with us all the time. I told you about the student who was trying to translate from the Hebrew Old Testament. And the verse in its proper translation would have read, the Lord of hosts who sits among the cherubim. And the student got it wrong. He translated it as the Lord of hosts who sits among the cabbages. It was a terrible translation which made the whole class laugh, but it was brilliant theology. If we were to look in Acts chapter 17, Paul spoke to people in Athens. And he said, the God who made the world and everything in it, the one who is Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by human hands, nor does he need to be looked after by human hands as though he lacked something, since he himself gives life and breath and all things to everyone. He made from one stock every race of humans to live on the whole face of the earth, allotting them their properly ordained times and the boundaries for their dwellings. The aim was that they would search for God and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Indeed, he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Paul there is telling the people in Athens that God is great and powerful and he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's transcendence, but in God we live and move and exist. We have our being. In Isaiah chapter 57, the prophet wrote, For this is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see, God is high and exalted and great, but where does he live? He lives with those who have a contrite and a lowly spirit. And also in chapter 66, Isaiah says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being, declares the Lord? These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Again, you see the transcendence of God, God's throne in heaven, the earth is his footstool. What a magnificent family home God has, but he lives with those who are humble and contrite in heart and who tremble at God's word. Jeremiah God says through Jeremiah, am I only a God nearby and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? The greatness of God is transcendent, but also the 
imminence of God. He is there in secret places and God sees you in the secret places where nobody else sees you. As Paul said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. In him we live and move and have our being. God is imminent. God is a loving father. He's close to us. We can never get away from God. We can never hide from God. God is always there. In the Talmud, which is all the Jewish oral laws written down about the year 200 AD, it says the idol seems so near, but is so far. Yahweh seems so far, but is so near. J is for just. If you had two children in front of you and you offered sweets, but you only offer them to one of the children and not to the other, you know what the cry of the other child would be. That's not fair. It's very young that little children learn about justice. They have this innate sense of fairness. Where does that come from? It comes from the fact that they are created in the image of God. And although the image of God in us is a poor image, we mirror God, but in a rather distorted way, that child is reflecting something of the image of God because that child is aware of a sense of justice. Things should be fair. And this is because God is fair and loves fairness. God is just and loves justice. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, God is the rock. His ways are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. The holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. And in Revelation chapter 15, those who have been victorious over the beast sang together, great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the ages. So just as the holiness of God demands that we be holy, so the justice of God demands that we be just. In the Old Testament, you know how God demanded justice for those in courts. You couldn't bribe a judge. He demanded justice for the poor and the oppressed. And he demanded justice for the fatherless and the widow. Amos chapter 5. Let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Micah chapter 6. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Justice in our day is a hot button issue. We have the Me Too movement. It wasn't fair the way women were being treated by powerful men. We have the Jeffrey Epstein case. We have the Black Lives Matter movement. It is not fair the way that black people were being are being treated. We have the United States buying up all the COVID medicines in the world so they have as much as they're going to need and more. We have what's going on in Hong Kong with the rights of the Hong Kong citizens being taken away from them 
by the mainland Chinese government. And because we are created in the image of God, something rises up inside of us and cries out, these things are not fair. And so it should be. Christians should be at the forefront of demands for justice, not in the rear guard. Christians should be out there with all those claiming justice for those who are being cheated and being treated unfairly because we should love justice, because God is a just God. Just as God demands justice from his world, God demands justice from his church. And so we have seen today that God is fatherly, God is gracious, God is holy, God is imminent, and God is just. So day by day, O Lord, of thee three things we pray, that we may see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly, day by day. Amen.